You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. All right, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles uh, this morning to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 10. Um, last week, we began to talk about redemption, and I'm just going to tell you that uh, this Spending two weeks on redemption is not even come near uh, to scratching the surface of it. As I mentioned last week, the entire theme of the Bible is God's seeking to redeem us. My seminary professor said that uh, the Bible could re- be renamed God's story of redemption. It is from the beginning to the end. And so uh, we are not going to even scratch the surface, even spending two weeks on this. And so... Um, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 10, uh, really talk about that redemption, the fact that a man was created in a perfect relationship with God, and then early on, man rebelled against God, plunging the entire world into sin. There's not one person in this world who is uh, not subject to sin, who is not coming to this world as a sinner, and sin ultimately separates us from God. That's what sin does. It separates us from God um, so that we cannot have a relationship with him. But as soon as sin came into the world, we see very early on in Genesis chapter 3 that God puts into motion a plan to buy back sinful people, to redeem them. That is the whole purpose of the Bible. Everything that you read in the Bible is to show you how God has done that and then to invite you into that redemption. And so uh, last week we saw the means of redemption, namely the blood of Jesus is what redeems us. And then uh, we also saw the purpose for redemption is that to free us from our sins. And then today we're going to focus more in on what is known as the scope of redemption. How extensive is this uh, redemption? So let me read our passage again. And let me remind you that this is the very word of God. A lot of times you just, you know, whatever, you're just looking at words, maybe, but these words are living and they're active and they're powerful uh, and they can open up hearts. And so I pray that you would have eyes to see things that maybe you haven't seen before or have forgotten. And if there's anyone in here who does not know Jesus, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit through these words would just bring them alive spiritually. And so that's what I'm hoping that you would pray as well. So Ephesians 1, uh, 7 through 10, the very word of God, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This ends the reading of God's word. Uh, Let's look to him for guidance. Lord, I pray that you would help us to approach your word today with uh, with humility, with humble reliance upon you. I pray that we would be like little baby birds with our mouths open ready to receive the nourishment that we need. I pray, God, that you would speak to us, remind us, 
of these things. I pray that all distractions would be removed. I know that uh, Satan's demonic forces are here right now uh, trying to convince people that this is junk, they don't need to listen, that there's more important things that are going to be going on later this afternoon or maybe uh, this week. And I just pray, God, that we would have our focus on you right now, that we would see what you have done for us and that you would blow us away uh, by these truths, Lord. And so I just pray that you would empower me um, to speak sincerely and boldly and the truth. And I just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we get into the scope of redemption, I just want to say a little bit more about how redemption was accomplished and applied in our lives. We mentioned last week that a word that is closely tied to redemption is the word ransom. Uh, a ransom is a is something that is paid to one party for the to ensure the release of another party. The question that I want to answer first is who was the ransom paid to? We talked about Jesus giving his life as a ransom, and so I want to ask the question of who was that ransom paid to? Um, now, there are two main possibilities as we look at the Bible. Uh, is The first is, it, was it paid to Satan, or was it paid to God, right? Because we are all slaves of Satan. Um, we are in bondage to sin. Therefore, is the ransom paid to Satan so that he releases us from that bondage? Or is the uh, ransom paid to God? Uh, in preparation for uh, today's sermon, I listened to a couple other sermons about redemption, and I came across one that I really enjoyed. The guy was a great communicator. He did a, an awesome job in explaining these words, the different words that are used for redemption in the Bible. Uh, and it was great all the way up until he got to his illustration. And then it just went south, and I'm like, ugh. Uh, and so here's how he illustrated uh, the ransom idea. He was talking about the fact of if you ever go to a market where you can negotiate a price for something, um, you never want to show your cards, so to speak, right? You never want to go into a market and be like, oh my goodness, I have to have this table, right? Because if you say that, then they're going to be like, oh, how much are you willing to pay for this table, right? So you kind of want to go in and be like, oh, that's a decent table. I could take it or leave it. You know, like, oh, what would you be willing to pay for it, right? And so you don't want to, you, you, you want to kind of show a disinterest. But this, the guy, as he was illustrating, he said, when God showed up on the slave market with all of these slaves to sin, Satan immediately saw God's interest in these people like, and came up to God basically and said, oh, so you're interested in that person or that person. Hmm. How much are you willing to pay for them? You know, and God basically is like, well, what is the price? And Satan said, here's the price that's going to cost you the life of your son. Now, I don't know if this preacher intended uh, to relay the implication that Satan is the one that sets the price for redemption, or that the price for redemption is paid to Satan, but that is the implication. And I'm here to say that nothing could be further from the truth. Satan does not set the price for redemption, for the ransom, and nor is the ransom paid to Satan. Uh, last week I mentioned um, the story, uh, C.S. Lewis's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and how this, this one character, Edmund, had rebelled, he had betrayed Narnia, and then he sought reconciliation. He sought to come back into the camp of Aslan, and everyone was willing to let him in except for the White Witch, 
who objected and said, no, 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 he is a traitor. He belongs to me. And she reminded Aslan of the, the rules upon which Narnia was written, that every traitor belongs to her. And Aslan, and I think by C.S. Lewis's intention, says his offense was not against you. The offense was written. These rules were set down way before you, which ever came into existence. I am familiar with them. But her point was this. The rules are laid down, therefore they cannot be changed and they cannot be altered. You, even you, great Aslan, have to follow these rules. We see this truth in the Bible, which is what C.S. Lewis's intention was. From the beginning of creation, God set down the rules, and the rules were this. The soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. Everyone comes into this world as a sinner. We sin because we are sinners. We don't become a sinner because we sin. We automatically come into this world as enemies of God. We do things that are against his will. The soul that sins shall die. And Paul in Romans 3 says that there is none righteous, no, not one that is a universal negative includes everyone so the rules were set down by god and because they were established by god it cannot be changed whatsoever and listen to this not even god himself can change the rules without cutting to the heart of his integrity and therefore negating his righteousness and his holiness. And as you read the story of, uh, in the Bible, you know that God does not try to get around it. He does not try to change it. God actually satisfies the demands of the law. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Um, what I've been trying to do for the last couple of weeks is give you a little sheet. I made it green today so it sticks out a little bit more, but if you didn't get one, there's one uh, by that on that table. Uh, just a few today, you might be surprised that I don't have a whole uh, bunch, but these are the passages that we're going to look at. So Romans 3, verses 20 through, through 26, using redemptive language uh, here, Paul tells us how God made sinful people right with him without changing the rules. God did not change the rules, okay? And here's what he says. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let me stop there for a second. The righteousness that we need to be able to stand in the presence of God and be accepted into his family as sons and daughters is a gift from God. It is not something that you can acquire on your own through effort. It's not something that you can pay for on your own. It is a gift from God, which comes because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 25 to say this, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation is an atoning sacrifice. It is a, a sacrifice that satisfies the legal demands of the law. A soul sinned, therefore a soul must die. Jesus was put forth as that satisfying sacrifice. And the, 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 the penalty was the death penalty, right? Jesus underwent the death penalty. And I want to remind you, right? In our country, you have to do something very severe uh, to get the death penalty. In God's economy, one single white lie warrants the death penalty. There is no distinction. Sin is sin. It is offensive to God. Jesus underwent the death penalty for you. He was the propitiation. This, as Paul goes on, was to show God's righteousness. And let me remind you that God's righteousness was on the line here. What will God do? He wants to bring people back to himself, but he can't change the rules. If God said, I know that the rules are that the soul that sins must die, but I'm just going to change those. God would no longer be righteous. So he does not change the rules because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In punishing Jesus for our sins, God remained both just and also became the justifier of us. That's what he did in one single act of Jesus being crucified on the cross. The ransom that was owed to God was paid to God by the blood of Jesus. And therefore, we are ransomed. We are made holy and upright before him. We are redeemed and brought into his family. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, to say that this was a demonstration, that this demonstration was according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. And there's a lot of lines in here where Paul just it seems to be waxing elegant. What does this mean here? According to the riches of his glory. In other words, the gift matches the giver. If you understand who the giver is, and then you look at his gift, you think, yep, that is consistent with who he is. Think of it this way. Uh, John D. Rockefeller was one of the richest men that the world ever produced, one of the richest people that uh, America ever produced. If Rockefeller was to give of his riches, he could do it in one of two ways. He could give either from his riches or he could give according to his riches, okay? Either from his riches or according to his riches. Now, the history records that most often that Rockefeller gave from his riches. In fact, there's a, a famous picture of him uh, stooping down and he's all decked out and he's giving a dime to a toddler. And I guess this was his trademark that whoever he met, he would give a dime to. Um, one wonders how many people were truly set on the road to wealth because of that dime that came from his riches. But what if he gave according to his riches? What if the gift reflected his riches? What if he said, hey, 
I'm going to give you a fully furnished house, or hey, I'm going to pay for your college tuition for the four years plus that you're there, or I'm going to go into this neighborhood that is broken down and I'm going to pour the money into it to restore that. That would be giving according to his wealth, according to his riches. When God gives according to his riches of his grace, he gives from his unlimited treasure house. Grace is an overflowing abundance of unmerited love, inexhaustible in God and accessible through Jesus Christ. The phrase that Paul uses to describe the amount of grace is found in verse 8, and it says, which he lavished upon us. We sang that in one of the songs. He lavished it upon us. And, and you, can, you can get a picture, a feel for that word, right? To lavish means to give more than is necessary. It's to pour out so that there are leftovers. A lot of leftovers here. Speaking in terms of money, let's just you know, give an illustration using money. If God were to come to you and say, hey, Add up all your debt and tell me what it is. And so you add it up, your student loans and your, you know, your uh, mortgage and car payment and all that stuff. And you're like, okay, my total debt is $125,213.31. God does not say, well, I'll pay half or, or I'll pay a quarter of it. Or even, hey, let me give you um, that exact amount. God says, that's your debt. Here's a million dollars, right? It's more than enough to cover any debt that we may have that is according to his riches, of, the, of his grace. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 8 and 9. He says this, In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Oh, how does that fit in there? What, how is that one of the blessings? Um, making known to us the mystery of his will in all wisdom and insight. Well, not only has God made us holy and blameless before him, not only has he adopted us into his family by redeeming us and forgiving us of our sins, he has also made us alive spiritually. He has also opened up our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears to see things as they really are in this world to see what is really going on in this world. Uh, Paul, we'll get to this a, a little bit, uh, we'll get this after in the new year, when we talk about his prayer at the end of Ephesians 1, where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you can get this stuff. God has already opened up our eyes. He's giving us, given us wisdom and insight to see things that we don't see. And this has been one of my prayers this week is to help me to see beyond the physical, beyond just what I can see with my physical eyes and to look at what's going on behind the scenes. You've heard me say this before. Uh, we just went through a really tumultuous uh, political season. And depending on where you fell, you, there was probably several candidates that you really hated, you know, on the other side of the aisle. And the tendency is to start to see them as the enemy. But I think Jesus gave us a little bit of insight into this when Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Because the Roman soldiers knew exactly what they were doing. The Jews who delivered him up would have said, no, no, no we know what we're doing. But they didn't because it wasn't them physically uh, doing it. It was the forces behind them that were tempting them, that were luring them to do this. 
And so our prayer, and what God has done is he's given us insight to see these things, to see the world as it truly is, to understand eternity, to understand life versus death, to see these things that we normally would not be able to see. And he's given us wisdom and insight into these things. Not only has God forgiven us and taken away our sins, those, those sins that distort our view, you realize that, right? Because of sin, you cannot see things properly. How many times have you um, misinterpreted something that someone did and then you became angry at them, right? And you hold a grudge for maybe years because you did not hear properly. I remember, uh, I wasn't gonna share this story, but I. Uh, remember my uh, sister-in-law, she hated my grandmother for years and years, hated my grandmother. And we're like, why do you hate her so much? And she said, it's because of what she said after my wedding, because my dad recorded the wedding. And uh, what did she say? She said um, that regarding the wedding, she said that they will be married and divorced in no time. They'll be married and divorced in no time. And we're like, I don't think she said that. And so we actually went back and watched the video. And the pastor from my church, um, even at a wedding, I try to keep my sermons to about 7 to 11 minutes in a wedding. He would preach like 30, 35 minutes. She came out and she said, you could have been married and divorced in that time. <laughs> she misunderstood that and held a grudge for over a decade. But how many times do we do that? Nope, this is what they meant. This is, this is why they said that. We need those spiritual eyes, those spiritual ears to hear what's really going on because Satan, sin distorts how we perceive things. And that's what God has done. He has given us wisdom and insights. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Paul here talks about this spiritual wisdom <clears throat> when he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And then skipping down to verse 12, he says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we, may, we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We have a wisdom that the world cannot tap into. It is given to us by God. Pastor and teacher Kent Hughes, uh, in his commentary on Ephesians, uh, he says the following regarding this. Uh, and this is a quote. Now <clears throat> put all the present blessings together as they flow out of redemption. There is redemption itself. We are twice owned by God. There is absolute, total, comprehensive forgiveness and the freedom it brings. There is the fact that it is not from the riches of his grace, but according to the riches of his grace, that he lavishes grace upon us. A, ver uh, a veritable food or flood of undeserved favor that will go on for eternity. And there is the wonderful gift of spiritual discernment. 
Each of these notes comes together to produce a remarkable song in the heart of the redeemed that will only be amplified in eternity. As we understand these things, it just becomes a song of praise to God. You sing out of joy because of all that God has done for you. God has personally redeemed you. Jesus' blood has personally cleansed you from all of your sin. And because of that, all of these blessings that we've been talking about and we will talk about are yours. This should be very personal to you. It should be very personal to you to where you are thinking about these things and dwelling on these things and saying, he did this for me. He This is for me. Maybe even inserting your name into this passage where the we's and the us are. He did it personally for you. So rejoice in the personal act of redemption, but also realize at the same time that this redemption goes way beyond you. It goes way beyond you. I'm sure that many people in here, especially if you have children, um, uh, have seen Disney's The Beauty and the Beast movie, right? Uh, If you haven't, let me just recap it very quickly for you. Because I see in this movie a beautiful illustration of what we're talking about. There is this handsome prince who has an amazing kingdom, an amazing castle, which is beautiful. And one day he is having a party, and this enchantress comes in, and she is disguised as an old haggardly woman. And he despises her. He treats her with contempt. And as a result of that, she places a curse, that's the language that's used, over the entire kingdom. And the kingdom that was once vibrant and alive suddenly has changed. The prince himself has become a hideous beast. All of his subjects have been changed into various things like clocks or candlesticks. There is now darkness that floods the kingdom. The statues around the kingdom are these hideous gargoyles. And the kingdom is broken down with cobwebs everywhere. There is barely any life in there. It's doom and gloom. But then through some acts of sacrificial love, the curse is reversed and the, 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 the prince is transformed back into his original state. He becomes himself again as he was originally designed to be. But it doesn't stop there. The entire kingdom is restored. Everyone, everyone who was in there, who knew that this was not how life was supposed to be, is restored to their original form. And where darkness was, now there's light. Where there was death, now there are flowers blooming. The statues, the the hideous gargoyle statues are now transformed into these, these valiant knights. Everything has been restored. It didn't just stop with the prince. It went well beyond him. And this is the message here in Ephesians chapter 1. That if we pull right up close to it, we would see uh, and, and focus our attention narrowly, we would see that we have personally been redeemed. Jason Doring has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb personally. But if I were to pull out and see the 30,000 foot view, I would see that his redemption goes way, way beyond me. 
His redemption is the entire, his intent is the entire universe. He has redeemed us, and now he is intent on making a universe that is fit for us. The, the redeemed, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Once again, uh, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says this, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And this just makes sense. The entire universe was created in perfection. It was created in harmony. And then because of man's sin, God's most precious creation, man, because of man's rebellion, everything became chaotic. And so God, not intent, not content to leave it in that state, as I said before, immediately put into motion a plan to restore all things to that state of harmonious perfection through Christ, beginning with mankind. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, uh, because here we see this disruption of God's original created order. Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 18 through 25. <clears throat> Here's what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That gives us a little hint of the restoration that is coming. Uh, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Let me just stop there for a second that, and camp on that idea of creation groaning. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Romans, commenting on this, this is what he said, quote, I wonder whether the phenomenon of spring supplies us with a part answer. Nature every year, as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It has come out of the death and the darkness of all that is true of the winter. In the spring, there it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation, to be going through some kind of birth pangs year by year. But unfortunately, it does not succeed. For spring leads only to summer, whereas summer leads to autumn and autumn to winter. Poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity, the principle of death and decay and disintegration that is in it, but it cannot do so. It fails every time. It still goes on trying as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never succeeds. So it goes on groaning and travailing in pain together until now. It has been doing so for a very long time, but nature still repeats the effort annually." End quote. Just nature groaning. And maybe we have a picture in, in nature, that picture of it trying to just overcome this death. 
Paul goes on in Romans 8, verse 23, says this, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What Paul is basically saying here is that nature's destiny is inseparably linked to man's destiny. Because man sinned, the rest of the creation was subject to futility, was subject to the curse as well. And likewise, when man's glory is divinely restored, nature's glory will be restored as well. In other words, just as man's sin brought corruption into this universe, so man's restoration and righteousness will be accompanied by a restoration of not only the earth, but the entire universe to its divinely intended perfection and glory. This world is beautiful, but we do not see the full beauty of it as God had intended. And this is what God's grand plan is. It goes beyond our comprehension. Let me just say that these things, this is why we need spiritual eyes, because we cannot comprehend these things. And I don't fully, I don't think we'll fully comprehend them in this life either. Even on a personal level, think about it this way. Think about a body that is free from disease and breakdown. Perfect eyesight, perfect hearing. A, a, a body that can run and not get tired. A body that can make it up a simple flight of stairs without getting winded, right? A perfect body. We, we, we can't imagine what that would be like. And then take it one step further. Think about a body that is free from sin. Think about it, right? A body that is free from jealousy. A body that's free from selfishness. Is that possible? A body that's free from lust. A body that's free from making people angry, either intentionally or unintentionally. A body, a mind that is free from misunderstanding who God is and what his word says. That's what's coming to us one day. That's what it means to be restored. That is beyond, I know it's beyond my comprehension because I've always lived in this body which is subject to all of that junk. And I've never lived in a way that's been free from sin completely. But one day in the restoration, that is what is promised. We will stand in the presence of the one who created it all, who never gave up on it all, and then in the fullness of time came to redeem it all so that he could restore it all to its original state. According to Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, this was God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You and I are part of God's grand plan of redemption. Isn't that awesome? He starts with us. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. It begins with us and it will climax in the entire known creation being restored. As always, as we close, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this. Now, I know that if you've been here for any length of time, 
you know that I basically almost say the same thing at the end of every service. And the tendency is to think, oh yeah, here he goes, and to tune out. The reason that I do this is because the first thing is I want you to remember those who are here today who are not in Christ, who are not believers, I want to remind you that the door is still open. That's what I want to do. I want to remind you that the invitation is still there available for you to come, and I do not know how long that door will be open for you. We've talked about this before. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are even guaranteed the next minute. And so if you're here today and you have not given your life to Christ, that door may close and never open again for you. You may stand in the presence of God and be judged by him for your sins. That's why we close the way that we do every week is to remind you that Jesus is there inviting you into this redemption, saying, I died for you. My blood was poured out for you. Your sins, which are many, and which separate me from you, my mercy is more. My mercy can cover all of them. And you may be thinking, no, 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 you don't know my sin. You don't know how bad I am. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All of your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. And you know, I, I can't, I'll never be able to convince someone that they're bad, but I'll just tell you this, that you know, if you take a hard look at yourself, you know that this world is messed up. You know that you personally are messed up. You know that you probably, you know this because you've probably worked hard over years to try to become a better person to no avail. You can't do it. You can't do it. Sin only produces more sin. And that's why we need Jesus. Jesus comes to make all things new. And if you give your life to Jesus, what will happen is that he will come into your life, the Holy Spirit will come into your life, and he will start to conform you into the image of Christ, to where you start to think more like Christ, you start to talk more like Christ, you start to act more like Christ. We'll still struggle with sin in this world, there's no doubt, but that's why we long for the redemption of our body, right? that one day there will no longer be that. And so I just want to invite you, if you're here today and you have not done this, the invitation is there to be restored spiritually, to have those eyes open. Just pray, Jesus, open my eyes. I can only see the physical right now. Open my eyes to see beyond that, to, to, for me to see who you are. If you haven't done it, the invitation is there. Let me pray. Father, I know that once again, as always, Lord, I do believe uh, in a real devil, a real enemy who is present here right now, trying to convince people that this doesn't make sense. It's, it's just a bunch of religious garbage. It's whatever. And I pray that you would stop him. I pray that you would thwart him. And I pray that you would open up hearts. I pray that you would bring life where there is death right now. And I pray for those of us who do know you, God, we hear these things over and over and over again, and we take them for granted. I pray that you would help us to see them anew today and to just stand in awe of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And I just pray this in his name. Amen.